Melati de Alves is a sociocultural anthropologist and currently teaches in the Women and Gender Studies program at the Faculty of Graduate Studies at the University of Colombo in Sri Lanka. Her PhD research was on disappearances, the uses of maternalism in political protest. And if you want to hear a bit more about that, stick around to the end of the interview because we do talk a wee bit about that. But first off, I wanted to ask her about her perception of how the pandemic has played out generally in Sri Lanka. Yeah, I think we have been a bit different from some other countries because um, we the, the first case was actually in January. We had a Chinese tourist. And so there was a lot of panic when she was diagnosed. But um, they did some tracing, found out who she had interacted with. Nobody had been infected. And then she was cured in a hospital. So I think this set up a certain kind of confidence in the government. So much so that they started making videos saying we are a COVID-free country, <laughs> come visit us, which I think was a huge mistake. Wow. <laughs> um, and then I think it was around um, early March when it was discovered that a couple of tour guides who were taking around uh, Italian tourists, German and British tourists had got infected. And uh, so there was kind of then a second panic. And I think that was taken more seriously uh, and uh, the government immediately uh, closed the schools and uh, universities and said there'll be some public holidays where people should just work from home. So we had that for about three days. Um, and then, you know, uh, they started tracing um, and they then said um, suddenly on March 20th that they were going to have a curfew. And then this curfew just kept getting extended and extended. Uh, the capital city, Colombo, uh, was particularly affected. So we were just, you know, constant curfew. But some of the other parts of the country where they felt there wasn't that much of a concern, they kept lifting the curfew and then putting it back on. So there was a little bit more flexibility. Right. Um, but I think the biggest problem we had was that we were not testing. And since, you know, a lot of large percentage of the population can be asymptomatic, I don't think we've really been able to, you know, capture uh, the infection rate um, in Sri right. Lanka. So we have actually right now a very low infection rate because it's only very recently that they increased the testing even for 1,000 people. And, you know, this is country with like close to 22 million people. So, you know, testing 1,000 a day is just not going to do it. So they've been trying to do tracing, but um, I think without the testing that goes with it, um, it's rather inadequate. So at the at the on the day that we're speaking, which is May the sixth, twenty twenty, the official death toll is is nine deaths out of twenty two million. So that's that's pretty that's tiny, right. but it's um, I guess it's impossible to know. <laughs> how accurate that is and um, what will happen in the next few months if if there isn't sufficient tracing and um, testing yeah. going on. Um, there, has, there have been some accusations against the government saying that some other kinds of deaths are not, uh, there have been people who died of other kinds of respiratory illnesses and none of them have been tested, but they've just been cremated. Uh, the overarching issue we're having, I think, in also trying to keep everything uh, at the rates low is because 
the the government has been trying to have elections. So uh, it, the elections, uh, you know, were declared on March, um, I think it was like around March 2nd or 4th, and the elections are going to be held on April 25th. Clearly, uh, as March progressed, you know, it, it was, you know, quite clear that that was not, you know, we were not going to be having elections on April 25th. So the opposition kept calling for a reconvening of parliament, which the president was very much against because, um, you know, we have uh, this kind of system of government where the president is elected separately and then parliament is elected and a prime minister is chosen from within those, from within the general election. So we had the presidential and it was a different party's president who, you know, came into power. So he didn't want to reconvene a parliament which he felt was partisan to the other side. So so the prime minister belongs to one party and the president... Well, no, what happened was that then the prime minister uh, in November resigned when the president was elected and it was clear that it was from another party. Okay. So the prime minister is also from the same party as the president. It's actually his brother. Um, but the rest of, and, and, and he had his own cabinet, so he appointed his own cabinet. But the, the parliament is made up of a lot of uh, members of the opposition now. Uh, and so I think the current government was concerned that they were not going to get enough support if they reconvene this parliament, even though the opposition has, you know, made it very clear that, you know, this is a major crisis and they are willing to work with the government. The president is adamant that he's not going to reconvene. So the next date for elections is June 20th. And, you know, now the opposition is protesting these dates. Right. uh, Because they're saying there isn't enough time for campaigning and that it may not actually be very safe. But the government is pointing to South Korea, which actually had elections. Um, But, you know, they, they had already sorted out their virus situation. Plus, you know, they have much more resources. So the way they conducted the elections was, you know, um, in a very sophisticated fashion. They, you know, uh, I don't think we are able to set up all that in time. And the other other criticism the opposition makes is that, uh, you know, the government had, you know, a lot of leeway in uh, handing out goods, for example, during the, this pandemic, during the curfew. And, so they have had an upper hand in, you know, their campaign. And there were actually government ministers who were campaigning even during curfew. And the opposition has not had, you know, a chance. So they feel like they're already starting from, you know, a weaker position. And this is a, a very naive question, but just for the benefit of anyone who, like myself, who's not uh, familiar with how the, the two groupings split, I mean... Uh, where's the fracture between the opposition and the the president in terms of like ideolo- ideological uh, stance or yeah i mean ideologically sometimes it's <laughs> difficult to say because sometimes the policies can be you know rather similar but uh, we have two major parties in the country and so the mm. president um is is from a new new alliance which is um, you know called SLPP and the earlier government was primarily made up of the UNP in co- coalition with some um, other parties as well. But we've had then the UNP, which was the other main party, also splitting. So that's also now split into two, um, right. and which also has weakened it. 
um, uh-huh. and okay. the easy way of differentiating is saying you know the UNP is more sort of has right wing economic policies and the uh, SLPP is more left wing. But I I really don't think you know those those adequate uh, ways to describe them. Mm-hmm. How does the curfew work then um, in terms of enforcement? Uh, is it um, th- does the sitting government have carte blanche to introduce a curfew, like, uh, or is it done at a, at a more local level? Well, yeah, it's it's announced by the national government, and there have been also um, a criticism saying that you can't actually declare curfew without it being gazetted in parliament. And since parliament is not sitting, this curfew is illegal. Uh, and so then the, the police appeal to the attorney general, and the attorney general, of course, has now given his okay. Uh, for this curfew, uh, because right. we also have these kinds of emergency regulations within which you you can do things as well. Um, so I mean, the curfew is something that is you know familiar to Sri Lankans who've you know gone through thirty years of war, you know, uh, two insurrections. Uh, there was some curfew declared even after the Easter bombings last year. So I mean, that's. That's a familiar kind of practice for people. They understand curfew, and I think that's part of why it was instituted rather than saying lockdown in a lot of the other countries where you could still go out. Uh, part of the problem was that, you know, people were rushing to shops and we don't, in some areas, we don't have supermarkets. There are much smaller little grocery stores. So there was huge congestion. Uh, and so they realized this was this was a problem. And so that's why for the area where I live in, they just said, it's, you know, curfew until further notice. So we, you know, for a long time didn't even know when they were going to lift it or they would keep trying to lift and then there would be, you know, huge queues at, at uh, pharmacies and things like that. So then they would then put us back into curfew. But I think the biggest challenge for Sri Lankans is that this curfew is very different to the kinds of curfews we're used to during the wartime, where it was a time for togetherness, you know, people still... Uh, you know, met with each other, helped each other, you bartered food, you know, you work things out like that. Whereas here, you have to isolate. And that's something that's been very, very difficult for Sri Lankans. Uh, This kind of, you know, self-isolation and being stuck in your own little home has been very tough. Why, Why is the isolation particularly challenging? Because I think people like to be together. Uh, uh, it's it's very mm-hmm. kind of close knit uh, society. So those days during curfew, you know, you still kind of walked around your neighborhood. You visited your neighbors. Oftentimes, you have families living close to each other. So you know, it's the time to go visit your family. Um, all those things now you can't do. You know, so we we still have people you know jogging or cycling around our neighborhood, but that you know way of Visiting each other and and chatting and spending time with each other cannot take place. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that there had been some racialization of the people who had contracted the virus. Um, I was curious as to what you what you meant by that. Yeah, because unfortunately, when they started uh, finding and and this was more just in terms of symptoms being shown, um, and also we right. had. Um, a lot of the because we are an island, you know, a lot of the infection then came from outside. So first it was tourists who brought it, and then we have a very large population who are migrant workers in other countries. So we have a large population in the Middle East. We also have a large population in South Korea who, you know, a lot of men who work in South Korea. We have a lot of um, uh, 
people working in Italy, actually a lot of Sri Lankans are you know, work as caregivers um, to the elderly in Italy. Uh, and then, of course, we have also a very large body of students who are in other countries. So when they started, you know, closing down, if all these people rushed back in. And so then, they, mm-hmm. you know, so a lot of them were all people had gone on pilgrimage to India and things like that. And in the early days, a lot of those people, um, you know, there was no testing at the airport. You know, they would just check your temperature. Or And latterly, if you came in from what was seen as a high-risk country like Italy or whatever, you would be taken to quarantine. But that happened a little bit too late. So there were a lot of people who had already gone into their homes. So when then these symptoms started showing, um, you had, you know, sort of more lower-income people uh, who would live in much more close-knit, you know, societies where you, you'll have, you know, a large extended household in, in one home. Yeah. So that's then the infection started spreading like that. And so then that that's when these kinds of, um, uh, you know, marginalization started taking place and discrimination in saying, okay, well, it's, it's the people who live in the shanties or it's the Muslims who live in extended households who are then, you know, creating these sites of infection. There was all, we also had this situation, I think this has happened in several other countries too, where, you know, people were meeting in places of worship. So there was, there were, you know, people meeting in mosques, despite, you know, the curfew, or, or there was uh, some church services that took place. So then those, those kinds of, you know, meetings, and then the infection that arose start getting stigmatized as, uh, and and this led to especially Muslims being stigmatized, and I think that goes back to also um, in the tensions from last year with the Easter bombings, and you know, seeing the Muslim scene as you know mm-hmm. uh, creating havoc then and creating havoc this year as well. And this time is is a very special time for people because we had in April the Singhala and Tamil New Year which is like a very, very, the most important time for people to get together. So even people who work in cities will head home uh, to be with their families. It's a bit like the Chinese New Year as well. So this is when, you know, people are traveling around the most. And then to be told that you're in curfew and you can't celebrate this with your family was already you know, had heightened tensions. Yes. And so people were looking for scapegoats. And so some of the first markings of this disease was actually among the Muslim community. But actually, if you took it as a percentage, it was very, very small. There were just only, you know, a few groupings, but it was enough for, and I think social media then fuels it as well, where, you know, people started, uh, you know, making allegations about the Muslim community. When when you talk about victimiz- victimization, what does that uh, typically, what form does that take? Is, is it primarily media and social media victimization or... Yes, we had we had some TV stations which everybody has been watching because you know people wait for the updates, which yeah. uh, were extremely responsible and um, you know really kind of fueling this by asking, you know, actually spreading rumors you know that were incorrect, uh, and they have right. not been taken to task for that. Getting on, you know, e- even ministers who were saying very inflammatory things that were completely incorrect. Um, a, a social media, of course, is you know just goes nuts uh, because you know people post very very problematic things on Facebook and things like that. Uh, As you so, know, it's the same all that, over the world. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah. that so that was very unfortunate, but of course, uh, it it uh, ironically has has kind of you know been stymied a bit because now the the largest vectors of of infection are um, within 
the military ranks because um, a lot of the military were the ones that were moving uh, people uh, who were infected and they and they were not you know uh, wearing a protective equipment so they a lot of them have now got infected and it's really spreading because that's another site where people live very close to each other in the barracks right uh, so it's spread within the military very fast and the military was one of the few who were allowed to uh, go on home leave uh, so they were the only people who were actually traveling uh, in this context and so they have taken it to their homes and uh, so it's been very very difficult now to you know track all those people so it, it sounds almost like there's a general level of uncertainty about how things will unfold in the next month, even as there's talk of restrictions being eased? and Yeah, I, I think it's, it's still very uncertain. And I think we are going to have an increase in infections now that they're going to start easing from um, the 11th of May. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I think that's been going for us, and that's been also very interesting speculation of why this is, is that, yes, we've not had that many uh, serious patients. So there's a talk that, you know, we are all immunized uh, for BCG, you know, that's the anti-TB vaccine, Yes. Uh, as well as polio. So um, there are now studies being conducted, actually, right now, not just in Sri Lanka, but in other countries as well, about whether those give you some immunity so that you don't um, get that even if you catch this virus, uh, you you don't really have some of those serious, uh, right. you know, side effects that other uh, other countries are facing. Um, yeah, although I I would say I think in the UK, for instance, um, the BCG was very widespread when I was a child, um, and they have the largest now the, the largest number of fatalities in Europe. So. Um, yes, that, that that's what I heard. I I didn't know that uh, people are still vac- you know, vaccinated for B- um, TB. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm sorry. I I actually don't know if that still happens. I just meant that that, that happened when I was a child. That it was a standard, universal vaccination. Um, so I'm I'm curious as to um, you know, you're a sociocultural anthropologist and you teach in the Women and Gender Studies program. So looking at how things are working through that lens, what do you see in Colombo and in the country more broadly? If, you, if, you, if you've been able to observe anything, I'm not sure if there's anything that has come to mind. In, in terms of how the well, virus I, I, has been unfolding? Or? Well, I, I, in terms of just how, you know, how how it has impacted people. I mean, you you have um, a a lens and a specialism that obviously I don't have, right? And so that gives you an ability to, um, I guess, analyze in a completely different way. And I'm I'm curious as to what you're seeing. Like I might look at a country and see one thing and you can look at it and see something different because you have this uh, level of um, expertise and this level of perception. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some senses we've seen phenomena that's similar in lots of other countries as well. I mean, um, you know, it's the people who are, you know, the daily wage workers, the self-employed, the homeless who are who are really, you know, suffering the most. Uh, and this having a curfew has been uh, really, uh, you know, have, has affected their lives hugely. 
obviously, you know, other, other sectors also are going to be laid off, you know, uh, cuts in salaries. So, I mean, I think those, I, those, that's kind of a phenomenon that I see across the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's happening. Um, I, I mean, for example, in terms of the migrant labor, I don't think it's as been as bad as India, for example. But we also had, um, you know, we we have these free trade zones where you have a lot of women working in the garment sector, um, and a lot of them were stranded because um, you know curfew was announced like at nine, you know, at nine a.m. We were told that there'll be curfew from six p.m. onwards, so a lot of those people couldn't get back home. Um, so, so that there were these, you know, a lot of crisis situations like that. Um, really? So they were they were stuck. They were stuck in in their boarding houses. Um, yeah. And a lot of these people also uh, work for manpower agencies. So, the, though they work in the garment sector, they they don't work for a company, a specific company. So there was nobody to really help them out, except you know some of the women's organizations that work with these women. So, so there's been a lot of you know, ad hoc sort of, you know, civilian initiatives as well to, you know, help, you know, people out. There's later on, the government also started saying that, you know, they were going to hand dry rations. Um, there's also an, a thing being instituted to hand, you know, 5,000 rupees to each family. Uh, but in those initial stages, you know, um, the government bureaucracy hadn't set in. And so there were a lot of people who were just really struggling to get their next meal during curfew and I mean even the organizing we were trying to do was kind of really thwarted because you know earlier on we we could travel around and hand dry rations to people and then suddenly you know because of curfew you couldn't do that so then you had to scramble to try to get passes to do this and you know but I mean I, I think this this has been happening also you know in other parts of the world so I mean I don't I don't see any of those as unique. Similarly, we've had um, lots of reports of increases in domestic violence. Uh, once again, I think that's uh, that that's been reported. I was just reading today about uh, in Russia as well that the rate has increased hugely. So the government, of course, has instituted things like saying, okay, even when curfew is lifted, um, you can't purchase alcohol because the assumption is that alcohol leads to the increase in domestic violence. Uh, but I don't. I don't think that really has helped. Right. Yeah. Um, a couple of other things that I, I'm curious about, just based on your on your research, was that um, when you have been working on ideas of um, memory, and I think the term you used was memorialization. That's right. Yeah. Um, how does that? Um, kind of work intersect with um, how you're experiencing um, this particular period yourself? Um, well, I, I, I talk a lot to my friends in the North and the East who actually, you know, bore the brunt of the war. And for them, for example, you know, curfews and scarcities have um, sort of, you know, recalled that uh, period of great stress and anxiety that they went through during the war as well, you know. So, um, you know, some people, it's been very difficult for them to recall those memories, which they they thought they had kind of moved out of, you know. Um, Mm -hmm. Others have actually drawn on that uh, kind of resilience they have built up. So they feel like even if, you know, they... uh, So, you know, in the current context of curfews, you have uh, trucks coming down the lane selling stuff because you're not supposed to go out 
And so some places are better served than other streets, for example. But then the people who don't get that many trucks say, well, you know, we've learned to do with very little. Um, so it's not a major issue for us. Um, so I, I think it also, you know, draws on, you know, different strengths um, of, of people. But I, I it, it is definitely uh, the institution of curfew and, and this kind of lockdown situation has uh, taken people back to the time of the war. But as, as one of my friends said, you know, there you you sort of knew your enemy, um, even though there was, you know, you, you there were senses that, you know, there might be people within the community who might inform on you, for example. But here mm. it's like you really don't know where the enemy is because it could be, you know, residing even in the body of a loved one and you don't know it, you know. Yeah, um, and it, it, it's a very it's a very strange thing I was mentioning to someone a couple of weeks ago that the the idea that this is a, a global pandemic and yet the way that it plays out is such it's so intimate in so many ways you know it affects the the most intimate interactions that you have in your everyday life yeah um so there's a, a there's a sort of strange sort of dichotomy going on there i think um, um one other thing i wanted to ask you then um if you were able to give me a sense of colombo as a city how would you describe it before this happened? Yeah, I think um, you know Colombo is is a very uh, vibrant city. But I think if you compare it to some of the larger cities in South Asia, for example, Delhi or Karachi um, or Dhaka, uh, I, I think it's you know a lot of my friends who come from those cities often remark on the fact that it. Though it's very vibrant and busy, it still also has a very laid-back feel. Uh, they always say, you know, people are much more polite in in Colombo as, as opposed to their cities. Uh, it's also much more green. You know, I mean, at, at one point we were known as the Garden City of the East. Uh, so I think you know that kind of has been with us for quite a while. Uh, but ironically, in the post-war context, so that is after two thousand and nine, you know, when there was no conflict taking place in the country. We had more investors coming in, a huge tourism boom. We've also had a huge construction boom. And so I see the city really changing, um, you know, and uh, I would say not for the better in that I think a lot, lot of buildings coming up that are quite ugly and, and the planning hasn't taken place very well. So these, I think some of these beautiful tree-lined streets uh, really are gone. So it's, in a sense, uh, ironically, in the context of the curfew, it's, it's sort of, you could go back to sort of the times, uh, much earlier times. I mean, I think I remember from my childhood when Colombo was much quieter um, and, you know, so all the construction has stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, you you can hear, you know, the, the bird song much more. And the other part that I've, has also been very interesting is we are back to having different vendors going down our streets. And I remember from my childhood, they each one would have a very distinctive call, you know, and we, as kids, we would always try to imitate, but, um, you know, and so you see people returning to that and they're being very innovative in the way they call out what goods they're, they're carrying in their trucks or their little trishaws or the little carts that they're pushing. Uh, so yeah, yeah, some 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 sense of going back to the past, but then when I'm up on my rooftop, you know, then I I see the lot of the construction, and you can see the the areas of green that has dwindled 
you know, from what it was, say, even like 25 years ago. And and you're a, a very keen observer of bird life. Um, That's right. What have you noticed noticed in the city since curfew has started? Well, one thing lovely about uh, Colombo is that despite all this construction and stuff, we've we still have a lot of bird life in the city itself. I mean, we, we do have lovely wetlands that we can go to, which is, say, a 30-minute drive away. But even where I live, which is kind of in the heart of the city, uh, we still have quite a lot of gardens, I think, that enable. So, you know, um, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, counting the bird species I could see in my parents' garden. And it, it was, you know, close to 50 species, which is, you know, quite unusual in, in, in a large city to mm-hmm. have that. Uh, and so then when I moved to an apartment, I really, you know, I used to miss the garden very much. You know, my parents had a very large garden and, you know, around them was also lots of gardens. So we, we attracted a lot, lot of interesting birds. And so I thought, okay, when I move to an apartment, you know, it's not going to be the same. Fortunately, I live on a beautiful tree-lined street nonetheless. So, yeah, during curfew, um, I thought maybe I should just you know, try to compare what I'd seen in my parents' garden to what I see now in a much more sort of, you know, concreted area. Uh, so I just started, you know, thought now that I had a little bit more free time, I just sat down and I wrote down, you know, the birds that I could see from my balcony. And then when I go up to the rooftop every day at, at sunset, and I was quite amazed to find that I still could see 40 species, um, you know, which... Um, so what are the kinds of species that that you... that yeah, it, it ranges from sort of the, you know, the common ones like the, the crow and the common miner to the red-vented bulbul to like the rose ring parakeets, uh, you know, which, or, or, or the white-breasted kingfisher, the, the woodpecker, which, which, which you see, you know, in, in most neighborhoods. But mm-hmm. um, I, being uh, on the rooftop, I can also see birds that, you know, fly from other neighborhoods to like a lake close by or something like that. So because of that, I've been, you know, seeing egrets and pelicans and, you know, brahmini kites and things that, you know, are also flying around. But one that I noticed that really struck me was there's a pigeon called the green imperial pigeon, which is much more of a forest pigeon. And that's definitely a bird that I have noticed during curfew has suddenly come into our neighborhood because, you know, I, I bird watch every, every pretty much, you know, it's, it's, I just automatically know what the birds are. I can hear them even if I'm not writing down. But during curfew, I was quite um, surprised to see this bird suddenly appearing on the treetops. What does watching birds and listening birds give you? Like, why do you do it? Uh, good question. I, I think it's one, one thing about, I think, bird watching is that you can do it anywhere uh, in the world. Uh, there are birds everywhere. Uh, so it's, it's sometimes you might be in a foreign country and you might see a familiar bird, which is fun, or otherwise, you know, seeing birds that are completely different. But it's, it's always something to do wherever you are, uh, which I think is, is a real pleasure. And then just watching birds, I think, is, is really quite wonderful. So that's why I call myself a bird watcher rather than a birder. A birder is usually somebody who who uh, really has checklists and uh, tries to see as many birds as possible. Whereas for me, I'm much more interested in watching birds. So, you know, I may not really be good at at sticking off my checklist because sometimes even if I go to a new area, I'm 
you know, if I see a bird that I find interesting, I might spend a long time just watching it without walking around trying to spot new birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in that sense, it's, it's, um, it's really wonderful to watch how they interact with each other, uh, you know, the way they fight off, uh, you know, predators. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a great joy. And it also gets you out, outdoors, you know, or even if you're even if you're stuck only on a balcony, there, there's still birds that you can always see. Do you have a bird that you that that's your sort of secret passion that you sort of you see one and you're like, yeah, that's my pal. <laughs> Not really. A lot of people have asked me this, and um, it's difficult to say. I don't know. I just get oh, such really? joy out of you know different kinds of birds. I mean, right now, um, I mean. This the the white-bellied drongo actually was not around in my neighborhood when I was a kid, but it it's also a bird that has come in within I would say the past ten years into into our neighborhood, um, and they're such a joy to watch, and you know their calls are so beautiful, and uh, normally you know non non confu non curfew non virus days I wake up very early in the morning to go swimming, and you know I get up in the dark and it's you know, sometimes you have to push yourself to do this. And it's such a joy that even in the dark, I'll, I'll hear these drongos, you know, calling to each other. And it really lights up my day, you know, for the rest of the day. Yeah. Can I ask you something else just before you go? Um, I, and I forgot to mention this, but um, um, what is the Archive of Memory and, and what is that project about? Uh, it was really a response to the celebration um, of, you know, 70 years of independence in 2018. And uh, the colleague and I, Hassini, who I was uh, doing the book with, Hassini Haputantri, we, we often got frustrated because, you know, all these Independence Day celebrations are just taken over, you know, by the politicians. And we really felt that we wanted to offer a people's, you know, history of the past 70 years. And I've, I've been working on families with, of the disappeared, uh, you know, that, that was from my PhD work onwards. So I've been you know, doing this for a very long time. And I, I've seen how important objects have been for these families. And so we thought, you know, what if we have do sort of an object-related history across the decades? You know, so um, it, it was a bit of a challenge because, you know, a lot, a lot of times people have stories, but they may not coalesce around an object. So trying to get sort of a historical event or moment linked with a certain object was a bit of a challenge. But we wanted to make it somehow also somewhat visually arresting, you know, because I think when you when you see and then you hear somebody's memory about that object, it's um, I, I think it it's I don't know has much more for you know force and power to it than if you just do a collection of stories of people's memories. And I, I was working with uh, another very close friend of mine, Shani Jawadana, who's who's a brilliant photographer. And we had done an earlier project on on the worship of this goddess that is shared by Buddhists and Hindus, and also worshipped sometimes by you know Christians and uh, Muslims. Uh, so you know this was another opportunity to also work with her again. Uh, and so we came up with this idea of doing this kind of you know visual history linked with objects uh, of the past 70 years and and what was there anything about it that surprised you when you were in the middle of it 
I guess I have been collecting stories for quite a while, so um, that didn't, you know, so there weren't that many surprises in that sense. I mean, one thing that was kind of hopeful though was, I mean, I, I do a lot of work on disappearances, um, you know, and in terms of the memorialization work from the, the tsunami, from the war. So I think a lot of the memories I've worked with uh, are, are very sad ones. Uh, so doing this kind of a broader one of, of the seven decades, I think um, enabled me to also move to, you know, so quite a lot of humorous memories, uh, happier ones, um, you know, which, which was kind of nice. But I must say when, you know, then I would write up each of the stories and most of the time, you know, I would just be weeping, you know. So I think emotionally it, it took a huge uh, amount out of me and I, yeah, which I have, you know, emotionally been debilitated for a long time because of the kind of work I do. But um, I think these, they become such personal stories, you know, and the, the, the pain. Um, that and, and it's also then a challenge of how you try to get across the pain, but also the hope that is, you know, encompassed in each story. Did, did you say that you felt like you were emotionally debilitated by, by the process? Is that what you said? Well, I think over the years, I definitely feel I've, uh, I, um, you know, have been debilitated in, in certain ways just because it's, this, it's, it's a constant, you know, you're working constantly with, um, you know, it's, it's quite, I don't know, very, very difficult subjects, you know, violence and disappearance and displacement and uh, grief and loss. Um, and, and, and it does take something out of you, you know, it, it does debilitate you, I think. And, and, um, why, why were you drawn to doing it? Because I felt, you know, these, these were issues that had to be addressed and understood. And I felt that as an anthropologist, I may be able to offer some analysis you know that others may not be able to i'm i'm also quite a political activist so it it was also a very political decision of you know airing these kinds of issues as well publicly what what happens with if you're able to um if you're able to put this into words and i know it sounds like a very naive question but i'm going to ask you anyway what happens in a society when you know what are the things that come together to enable disappearances to happen? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's when also the state feels like it just has to find another way to impose its, you know, power upon the populace. And the... The times it was really coming to the forefront was, you know, in, in these kinds of guerrilla warfare context. So when you can't fight these standard ba battles, it, it gets it gets very it, much more ugly, I think, uh, where, you know, you, you start resorting to clandestine methods. And was, was this uh, primarily during the, the 1980s? Am I, am I right in thinking that? Yes. So it, it began in, in the north and east where you would have, um, you know, so, sometimes there'll be a bomb blast and some military people, you know, might be killed. And then they'll do a coordinate search operation of the immediate area on the assumption that 
somebody in that community must have laid this, you know, bomb on, on the roadway that they were traveling or something. So they'll do this coordinate search. And so the, a lot of these young young men would, and, and sometimes older men would just be picked up. And so the whole, you know, van loads would be taken and then, you know, they don't return home. And you, the families will go to the, the camps and say, you know, where are our children? And they say, no, you know, we never took them or we released them. Didn't they come home? And, you know, this is so they, they just disappear. And it instills, you know, terror in, in communities. Um, and it, it, this was then kind of honed in the North and East and then uh, used uh, when we had an insurrection in the s- south of the country. So earlier it was sort of the primarily Sinhala military doing it to the Tamil minority, and then it became the Sinhala military doing it to um, this political party, which was called the JVP. So it was their activists who were pretty much had you know, control of vast communities. They would just come and leave notes and say, you know, close their shops and people would close their shops. So it, that's that's what I mean by it. It was that kind of those kinds of de- guerrilla tactics that they, they couldn't really, you know, grasp. So they decided, you know, one way was to just start disappearing. And a lot of, lot of innocent, um, you know, kids were also disappeared because it was very difficult to, you know, pinpoint who was really involved in this. Yeah, it it it's it's always struck me as interesting the way that um, disappeared became a verb at some point. You know. Yeah, were... I mean, I think in the human rights discourse, they always say you know forcibly disappeared. Um, I of course always use it in inverted commas uh, so that you know you kind of raise the issue the, of of the whole irony of of this term. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you for sharing that with me. Uh, I know I've kept you for a long time, um, so thank you. I, I do have one more question. Do you mind if I ask mm-hmm. you? Um, so um, when you talk about your research, and it sort of ties in with what we've just been talking about, you were talk- You mentioned about um, the use of maternalism in political protest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Yeah, so in, in the context of, of actually, you know, both the the civil war as well as then the youth uprisings, uh, one one way that the government would sort of you know impose its its power would say um, you know no no protest no public demonstration so they would just start banning any spaces for you know dissent uh, just even by you know civilian populations. So you um, had this movement of mothers and, and often it was, you know, a lot of their, their children or their husbands who, who had been disappeared, who uh, had that kind of emotional power to be able to nonetheless, you know, go out on the streets um, and, and protest uh, about the, the disappearances. And, and in, in the southern uh, context, um, because large public gatherings were banned, um, they would go to you know sites of uh, you know religious sites um, and and gather and you know curse the state and things like that. So, so that's part of what I meant by kind of the maternalist politics. So using motherhood as this kind of you know cipher almost for political protest, but because motherhood is also such an emotional category, you know, and, and everybody sort of reveres their mother. They did have some leeway 
in uh, their ability to criticize the state um, in a context where you know criticism and dissent was you know disallowed, and so they they use this argument of saying you know you, you know you know give give our sons back to us, and you know we we will we will look after them. Uh, because we want to, you know, continue to be mothers, and if you take our children away from us, you know, we are no longer mothers. And so, there was this very much of this emotional appeal that they could draw on, and I think the media also really played into that. Because um, whereas if we had said, you know, we, uh, you know, feminists or you know, left-wing women, or and there were like, you know, other kinds of groupings that were also protesting, you know, that that was much more difficult. You you didn't get the support of of you know so many particularly the media, uh, for your cause, uh, there was a very strong emotional appeal, you know, that could not be refused or, or could not be tarnished in a, in a way. Malati D. Alvis is a socio-cultural anthropologist based in Colombo in Sri Lanka.